Welcome to episode 5 of Expanding Beyond. Uh, it's a wonderful Saturday here in Munich. Sun is shining. Uh, I had a nice day relaxing in the sun. Uh, I guess you got a, up a bit earlier than I did, right, Monica? Uh, yes. Um, I am a cat person. Let's put it <laughs> this way. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm not yet at the level of the crazy cat lady on the simpsons but um i generally love cats and uh, i have this uh, new kitty uh she's one years old uh one year old and and she is um very eager to wake me up in the morning uh and since the last week she started to wake me up at 4 30. so i'm a bit tired yes <laughs> yeah. that is early that is true yes and I cannot go back to sleep for different reasons. Uh, so then I uh, I stay in bed tossing and turning because I'm also too tired to wake up completely. So <laughs> it's just, yeah. And this morning was uh, the same. And I keep forgetting that if I keep feeding her, she's not going to stop. Therefore, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very smart at 4.30. Let's put it this way. <laughs> yes, that is always... That but it has been a good day yet. for me too. Uh, I met some friends. Um, one of my uh, best friends here in Munich, she just got two twins and oh. they are adorable. Um, so, yeah, yes. it's a happy day. But she also won't be getting much sleep, I guess. No, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they actually, uh, her and uh, her husband, they, <laughs> they invited me to go to their place uh, at five in the morning. Like, if you cannot sleep, you can come here. <laughs> <laughs> take care of the babies yes Maybe. there were times where i had to get up at five in the morning as well and then the kid went back to sleep or we went back to sleep uh, i don't know at seven or something Oof. okay and working in the same time that's no, no small feat no i didn't work oh okay okay i just i was on parental leave okay not particularly pretty either Mind no, you, but uh, at least there's not the additional stress of the whole day and uh, the feeling that you have to keep up with everybody else uh, to not let the ball drop. Mm -hmm. Good. So what do we go through today? Um, oh, but first, before I forget, thank you so much for hearing our plea and uh, sending us feedback. Uh, so it's uh, very, very much appreciated. Uh, thank you to Marco with this uh, tweet uh, that get us also uh, some inspiration for the next episodes. Uh, I'm thinking around that topic, so uh, I'll uh, once I'm ready, I'll I'll share what I think. Um, mm -hmm. It's a it's a big topic actually. So uh, yes, that's like yeah. one episode. Probably that's what's gonna happen. Yeah, on its own. And thank you to Paolo that uh, made me the happiest person uh, yesterday by uh, telling me uh, how much he enjoyed. I, I highly respect him and he is a, uh, he, the, the things he writes, I really appreciate. Uh, so uh, the fact that uh, he is appreciating the content we produce means a lot to me. And he also said that uh, you are, you sound like a pro. So <laughs> <laughs> I think that makes you happy. Yes, it really does. Uh, I, yeah, I think that the main, if I think a lot about it, I think the main reason why I want to have good audio quality is because 
as a non-native speaker listening to podcasts where the audio audio quality is bad is just super hard so i don't want oh, to do that i never realized that but that is actually very true there are a few podcasts that i keep listening to because the people are the people producing them they're generally smart and and great um members of the community of the uh, engineering community software engineering community but uh, sometimes especially very old episodes are terrible from an audio perspective and you cannot really hear them at uh, uh, at the speed i usually uh, hear them uh, and that takes more time and then you know trade-offs and yeah, such yeah. so it's a it's a pity but yeah as a native a non-native speaker it's more difficult to to follow when the audio is not as good as it could be i mean i don't commute anymore so it's not as bad because listening on the train is oh, even yes. worse but still i prefer good audio quality absolutely anyways thank you so very much uh keep sending us your uh your feedback constructive feedback is also very welcome so uh if we uh if we could uh get that too uh that would be amazing Yes, any feedback is exactly. welcome. So what shall we go through today? Yeah, so uh, maybe a short topic that is maybe, I don't know, m a bit more of a curiosity than anything uh, you should ever do in a production app. <laughs> <laughs> is this uh, article, this blog post I found uh, last week on Twitter about uh, adding method overloading in Ruby. So languages like Java and C Sharp and uh, whatnot, they have this, or Elixir, I don't know. I don't remember all the languages. Many languages not, and not Ruby have this, this, this way of defining s separate methods that have the same name and they are only different by the number of arguments they take. But uh, Ruby is actually flexible enough that if you do some hackery, you can actually uh, do this with basically using method missing and sort of faking uh, the uh, the whole process that that is sort of in the the Ruby VM. I I think I so we link the 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 article in the post, but I think it's sort of. Uh, he also uh, looked into the performance, and it was like 14 times lower than oh, really uh, normal Ruby because basically you are replacing the built-in um, method dispatching with yeah. something you've built yourself in Ruby. So yeah, uh, and that is not surprising that this would be slower. Mm. And I assume that the original method for uh, for method missing is uh, written in C. I assume. Yes, and there's a lot of caching going on yeah. because you call methods so often that this has to be highly optimized anyway. So, but yeah, it, it's it is maybe not something you want to do in a lot of places, but it's inter it's an interesting experiment to see what you can do with the language, and it sort of uses a lot of those uh, meta programming um, tools that you have for Ruby and stuff like unbound methods and how they are different from methods that are actually belong to an object and stuff like that. Should we give a brief explanation what metaprogramming and method missing are doing for our listeners that are not familiar with Ruby? 
So meta programming, oh, how do you define that? It's just basically. It's a program that writes a program. Yeah, that's essentially that. Yeah, yeah, that's how I usually uh, narrate that. Yeah, so one of the examples in Ruby is, for example, active record. So basically at runtime, it looks at the database table uh, and then it magically defines all the methods for setting and getting attributes or the columns of a, of a, from that table. Basically. Exactly. So you don't have to define any of that in your, uh, in your model. When, when you define your model, it's the framework underneath doing that for, for you just by looking at the columns that are on the, on the database. Yeah. And there's of course arguments for and against stuff yes. like that, because yeah. then you can never really uh, search in your code base and find where stuff is defined because it's not defined anywhere. Ways. Yes, but it's not like I mean. There's the these there's sort of the other example where when you then actually define all the columns, then you basically get migrations for free. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That uh, is sort of the the thing that you lose here because you have to write the migration and then it picks it up in the code. And the other thing, other way around, is also true that if you have everything in the code, then it, uh, you can auto generate the migration. So yeah, win some, lose some as, as in most cases. My thoughts around, around this topic is that, so meta programming is something that whenever I came across it, everybody was like, don't use it, don't use it because you don't need it. And to me, it's the same argument with these are things that you shouldn't really do because or because it's difficult to understand where where things are defined when talking about the framework itself for the same reasons for which you uh, shouldn't use metaprogramming in your program. I think that you can use the same reasons for advocating for if there are libraries, gems, and the like that do that for you, very often you don't need to know where those things are defined because those libraries, those frameworks are have a proven track record that they work. Therefore, it's highly unlikely that the majority of us in our daily lives will need to figure out where something is defined in active record, for example. Yes, that's true. So it's always a matter of trade-offs. Uh, in the sense of like you gain speed and by by having a lot of stuff done implicitly for you or you could use any other language or any other tool in the language itself like ruby to do those things yourself but how efficient is that comparing to uh, relying on like when you drive a car you don't really need to know how the internals of the engine works um, so unless you're a mechanic or you're passionate about that, or your hobby is, uh, driving cars and then you need to know how to tweak those things for the majority of the people, it's really not needed. Yeah. Yeah. I would see it similarly. So in the code you write yourself, it's normally, it's seldomly necessary to do metaprogramming. There are so many other more explicit ways to do things. And in my career. In 10 years of development with Ruby, I had to do it only once. And 
it's there since three years and it's working. Nobody's touching it. It's perfect. It does what it should. And that's it. I, I've done it a few times and I remember at least one time where it was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but this was also sort of a library within the application to, to make to make sort of writing background workers and stuff like that easier. And in, in such a almost library like case, then it's it's fine, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, eventually it was, it's interesting and probably necessary to look into this and understand how that all works, at least on a certain level. In this case, it's more of an exploration of how far you can push it, I guess. Yes, yes. I know mean, if you're, because you're curious and then you want to know how things work. Yeah. yeah. One thing that I really appreciate about uh, Luca, he's the author of the, of the, of the article, um, is that Lately, he has been focusing a lot on performance because of the uh, framework, uh, the web framework that uh, he fundamentally he created. It um, it's called um, Hanami. Mm -hmm. It's a web okay. framework for uh, for um, yeah web applications in Ruby. And because he was looking at uh, how to um, how to have a very fast framework for APIs, for example, uh, so that it could be a good selling point for his new uh, framework. He's really focusing lately on performance. So in in his articles lately, you can get like really good insights on uh, what performs, what not, um, why. Uh, so if you want to learn a little bit more about the internals of how things work in Ruby and for, uh, for code that is usually more complex than... Uh, than what we write on a daily basis because it has to be generic enough to be a framework. Um, mm -hmm. Then it's worth uh, taking a look at this uh, at the Hanami blog. All right, so the magic and Ruby. Let's, yes. I guess, we switch gears to mm -hmm. your thing with this management. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess what. Uh, <laughs> um, so the, this past week I was reflecting again on how my the team I work with is uh, is shaped. So we have this, as I said multiple times, we have this cross-functional team, but it's not only cross-functional, it's also, let's call it cross-platform. So mm -hmm. I have a team composed of uh, iOS, Android, and uh, backend developers. And there has been uh, curiosity from different platforms uh, to look into what the other platform is doing, like, Mobile developers very often they would look would they would like to look into what's the life of a Ruby developer and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and as a company, we try to encourage people to get curious about what's happening on the other side. It helps because it's also easier for people then to understand the whole architecture and. Hopefully this then fosters a more uh, collaborative approach to designing, to um, also understanding where the problems are. Yes. So you get less friction when creating endpoints that you, uh, I'm always talking from the perspective of a backend developer. It's <laughs> hilarious to me. It's two years, <laughs> but still. Um, and, and there is this concept of the T-shaped developer and the I-shaped developer that... Um, uh, I find 
interesting because in the context of the teams, what I noticed that it's more often the mobile developers being curious about what's happening on the clients, uh, on the, on the backend than the vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, or usually what happens for backend developers is that they get more curious about our algorithm. So the machine learning part of our application. So you go deeper into the stack like an eye, right? Or the operation mm-hmm. layer. So you have this DevOps kind of concept. Then the mobile developers that are more curious instead to broaden their knowledge and understand what's happening on the um, either on the other platform. So iOS, we had a couple of cases of people from iOS migrating to Android and vice versa, or then going uh, deeper into the stack and, and figuring out what's happening on the on the backend side. But in one case, it's more, it's more often that the backend developer wants to know more about the, the framework and the language and, and the like and staying on the backend. That's my experience, at least, mind you. And the mobile developers are doing this other migration across the uh, the T um, side. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when I think about it, at least here in my in my current company, that's also sort of the case that it is harder to motivate the backend developers to do JavaScript and frontend stuff, and not so much the other way around. Maybe it's because maybe it's also a dependency thing. Could be. Because as a backend developer, you just develop your stuff and then you're done as a front-end developer you often have to make wait for the back-end stuff to get done right so it, mm. it sometimes would be easier to just do both at the same time yeah in my experience what we do we try to develop in sync so what we try to do is yes it's true that you need the back-end to work somehow so very often we mock the endpoints so we we create the endpoint and that's the easiest thing to do in in rails and then you can you just send back through the through the endpoint a static response that looks like a valid response and that's it and that yeah. allows the clients already to start developing against that and then you need to iterate over it so that you ensure that when it's in production there's no uh no assumption has been made that uh, hasn't been verified um, mm-hmm. but <laughs> but yeah so I, I was just uh, wondering about that and um, I came across again management uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to learn as much as I can in that in that area and I came across this article by uh, one of the first uh, sources out there like one of the first people that started writing out there about engineering management and um, he was uh, He was talking about um, from another great manager at Intel, Andy Groove, um, about the four activities of the manager. Mm -hmm. So he, Andy Groove was saying like, you can divide your day into activities that uh, are fundamentally for you uh, influence, you nudge, you be a role model, you are being a role model, or uh, wait for it, the last one was... Uh, decision-making. Decision-making, yes, thank you. And I was thinking about the role model part. And as I as I said, I am fundamentally, a, I still feel that I am a backend developer. This means that my experience is very skewed, like that the, my point of view is very skewed from, from this perspective. 
Mm-hmm. And in order to be a good manager and to understand better the context in which the developers in my in, in the team I lead uh, are working, what are their uh, issues, what are their difficulties, and in a in an attempt at uh, staying technically relevant, what I should do is uh, actually dedicate some time to get familiar with the technologies that I'm not familiar with. So especially being a role model, because there is this fine line between influence, influencing, nudging and commanding. It's, you know, <laughs> like, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think in my personal experience with me, it never worked. If you tell me to say something and my mother can confirm that I'm, <laughs> I'm never going to do that. Forget about it. <laughs> it's never going to happen. But if you give me hints here and there, then I'll start thinking about it. I'm like, maybe I should try. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I could. Like, I come to the idea myself in mm-hmm. the end. I play around with it. And if it fits my preferences, if it fits my mindset, I can definitely try. Sometimes uh, you uh, you just need to get to know what you don't like. right? Yeah. In the end, it, it, what, what I realized when I was a manager is that the only person you can really change is yourself, right? Yes. You can never make someone do stuff or change their behavior. You just have to figure out what you can do to, I don't know, maybe they have, they probably have their reasons for doing stuff in a certain way. So you just have to work on yourself or maybe the environment to, to, to do exactly. stuff like that. Yeah. So that's what made me think that I should start taking a look at uh, other technologies. So on Monday, I have an appointment with myself in my calendar for uh, setting up my iOS um, uh, development environment Mm -hmm. to start taking a look at what's in there. One thing that uh, is important, though, is that because you are a manager, your schedule is completely different. So what you don't want to do is lock your team. That's just silly. It's just pointless. Like the the whole point of you being a manager is to help them be as productive as they can be, but not because for the sake of production per se, but it's just they can do that stuff better than you most probably. Therefore, the people in your team should dedicate their time and what they do best. And your duty is clean the way for them, give them the tool they need. Mm-hmm. So the intention is to uh, pick up those little things that can help me understand what's going on in there and are not blocking for the team. So first things that come to mind are like stuff like bugs or, uh, you know, sorry. <laughs> those those bug fixes that are always at the bottom of the back. I know, right? Like priority <laughs> minor, <laughs> priority undefined. It's even worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is, nobody cares about that. Um, but yeah, so that, uh, you get to, uh, my intention is right now to get familiar with those things myself. So without the, without blocking the developers in my team, hopefully I would, I will get to a point in which I can spare some time from their time because I'm already productive enough that I don't throw away a couple of hours of their week and we could potentially pair together. So uh, <laughs> I could learn from them and maybe inspire them to do the same somewhere else. Yeah. Although what I'm hearing is that you are not really ready to give up programming. <laughs> uh, 
I'm not. <laughs> I am not. And this is super funny to me because I have never been the kind of person that goes home and program. Mm -hmm. I, I never did that. I was like, this is my job. I go home. I do everything else but that. Yes, I might read some things here and there, but that's work and there's uh, life. I wouldn't say that I really miss programming per se. There's a reason why you are called an engineering manager. So it's a matter of knowing the struggle of the people you manage. And you should have, in my opinion, at least, a good understanding of potentially what's going on so that you can then provide that perspective outside. Yeah. Like you should still be, as I said, technically relevant somehow. And if it's just for fun, that's okay. But I would do this out of my working hours. But right now, out of my working hours means that I'm actually studying for being a better manager 360. So learning about the product, learning about mm -hmm. finance, learning about a bunch of things. And that requires even more time. So I literally do not know when to do this. And still programming is fun. Yeah, yeah it is. So in the times when I commuted and when I was a, a manager, I spent my commute programming, which was also an interesting experience in breaking down requirements because I sat in the train for maybe mm -hmm. 30 minutes and I'm just really bad at leaving stuff unfinished. Okay. So, so I had to cut this down into oh, the, that's ti an interesting the exercise. tiniest pieces that I could finish in maybe half an hour. It was ah, also that's an interesting. Beautiful. That's really challenging. Yeah. I mean, do you even manage to get into the zone for like, because there is this no. narrative, you know, like no, no, no. I, I'm, I, I'm, I don't really believe in that anymore. Yeah. Going, getting into the zone is just, I, I'm not a fan of that. That's sort of the belongs to me in the category of this mythical 10x developer. That's sort of where this belongs for me. There is this clear, like, what I feel is that there is this clear threshold in which you are focused on your on your work. So if you get really a stretch of time that it's uninterrupted, it doesn't have necessarily to be about developing. Mm. But in general, like, if you have this longer streaks of time, then it's easier to get into a place where you can think in broader terms. I, I don't know how to phrase it in yeah. a better way. Of course, I sometimes at home spent an hour or two thinking about what I wanted to do and breaking it down into smaller pieces. But then when I was doing the actual work, I was sitting there with my laptop mm -hmm. and this one index card uh, taped to it with the task hmm. for the day. Well, so in a way you are in the zone when you are actually planning your work. And then the chunks are so small that you don't need that attention anymore. It's just execution. Yeah. And maybe this has, I mean, I'm, I've always been a fan of cutting, of, of having stories that are small. Mm. Maybe this, this, this sort of reinforced the whole thing that I'm, in most teams I'm on, I'm always the one that asks the question, yeah, can we make it, maybe make it smaller? Make it smaller. <laughs> There we could have an episode on that because I'm really yeah. curious to hear about your, your experience. What helped me when I was developing was even if the story wasn't small enough and we weren't going through this. So right now in my team, we, we, uh, what we do is we have one, I would call a meeting because for lack of a better word, but we get together and uh, the engineers are 
really breaking down the story in smaller pieces. It's subtasks, executional subtasks. Like, okay, so to do this, what should we do? Should we do this? Then we you do this other thing. Then you put the screen and then you uh, make the call and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So in a way, we are splitting the work. But when I was developing like three years ago or so, we were in that, in that point with that specific teams. What helped me, and this is what I, uh, what I keep, ad- why I keep advocating for TDD. In TDD, in my opinion, the testing is actually a byproduct. It's not the real value of TDD. Mm-hmm. TDD is a design technique. Yeah. Because then you can define high level. I was defining high level the, the scenarios that I wanted to have. And then for each of those, the test is failing. Then, how can I make this pass? And then I go one level deeper and then I have the unit test and this is the class and I in this method and these are the boundaries of that method that I should test it against. So you break the work in smaller and smaller pieces and it's very difficult then to lose track of what you are doing because the mm-hmm. tests are there to guide you into the design. Yeah, I agree. I'm 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 currently trying to to write all the tests that are missing for all our JavaScript mm. projects yeah. <laughs> because I just can't. I I just, I, I'm just also, I mean, there's of course also the side effect of having tests and then you are confident that this actually more or less yes. works, which is also very, it is very disturbing when you basically have no tests and then you have to try it out the whole time. Yeah, it's very scary. Figure out. <laughs> Does this still work? Can I upgrade this dependency or will this mm. break? stuff and in javascript there's like updates every day basically tdd also helped me a lot i was i just had this thought like it helped me a lot because my tendency is to over engineer things Mm -hmm. so tdd keeps me grounded like this feature is supposed to do these things nothing else forget Mm -hmm. about all the bells and whistles it's not necessary this is the bare minimum Mm-hmm. But this happens when you are developing a new, when I develop a new feature. If I add tests to something that it's there, then TDD is not really helping me because I keep finding stuff that I should add to this code that, like the tests are not covering everything that I want them to cover because of TDD. And then what happens is that I start yak shaving the test suite. <laughs> <laughs> so usually then it takes me longer to change code that is already there than to write new code. So how did we end up going from management to TDD? It was <laughs> about being a T-shaped developer. Therefore, as a manager, if you want to be a role model, you should, as a manager of a team that has multiple technologies in the in your team, my suggestion would be to get familiar with those technologies that you are not familiar with, because then you are you see monkey see monkey do so it's a way to inspire to nudge and there we get to the managerial activities to inspire and uh, hopefully have your uh, engineers do the same thing from their perspective so that you break these silences mental Mm -hmm. silos that people might have about their technology or i am an android developer or i am an ios developer you are an engineer within this team so at some point Possibly some of them might be get curious enough to uh, actually pick up work on another platform. But something that is enriching uh, the CV and the competencies of your uh, of the people you lead. And that is yeah. yet again 
one of the things that a good manager should do, think about not only the productivity and the performance of your uh, of the engineers you lead in your or the people you lead in your company, but also how are you growing them as people and as professionals so that once they are out there, they have given your company a lot of their their knowledge, but you also as a company have given them something back. Yeah. And it's not like new technologies don't come around every few years, right? Right. I mean, when we started, <laughs> Rails was pretty new and shiny. And yes. these days it's very, I don't know if it's already old, very old. I wouldn't call it old, but it's, um, <laughs> it's definitely well uh, grown up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even more closer in time. Like I remember when I joined uh, my company that it, this was five years ago almost, our application was written in Objective-C. Mm -hmm. And now everything, almost everything is in Swift. Ah, so you get to yes, get to learn a, a functional programming language. Nice. And the thing is that the application is the same, the competence is the same, but still you, you had to migrate even for something that big. Like it's not, oh, this is Elixir, it's something niche. No, this is a platform, is a technology that serves millions of applications mm. and in four years you have changed completely your code base from one language to the other i don't recall how long ago but we also did the same for android we moved completely from javascript to kotlin and this is recent it's now yeah i mean this is our profession is still very very young and there's just more things going on and now yes. with with the rise of those nice languages that ha actually have a static type system that actually is helpful exactly. so not java <laughs> yeah there actually... i need to get familiar yeah. again with uh, those kind of languages because one of the things that i appreciate about ruby is it's just you think and it works in a way if you think about it testing is kind of like a type safety system <laughs> done in a certain yeah. way I mean, there, there's people that say they write less tests when they have a proper... Yeah. Well, it's one of system. those things that you don't need to check for. Yeah. So so I, I, I did a bigger side project in Rust mm -hmm. a while ago. And refactoring is just great because the yeah. compiler just complains about it in all places when you've forgotten something. And you can't just run it and then realize, whoops, I forgot to rename that one method call. Fundamentally, if you are developing in a non-type safe language you need to write the tests so that you can be sure enough that at least those things have been caught yeah. uh, you are partially doing the job of the compiler okay so uh where can people find you people can find me on twitter as ujh uh, and under the same name on github although there isn't really much public activity um i mean you can look at my my Ruby and Rust stuff. And you can also f uh, find me on my blog at urbanhafner.com. Maybe at some point I will actually write a post again. And where can they find you? They can find me on Twitter, KFMolly with Mike. And you can find me on Dev2 or GitHub as Nirnreth. All right. And you can uh, reach us via email at hosts at expandingbeyond.it. And you can also find the podcast uh, on Twitter as podcast right. underscore EB, right? Yes. Then. All right. That was a fun conversation. It was. Enjoy your day, folks.
See you next time. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. bye. bye.